We are so excited to be back here one more week to share with you in the Word of God. Um, I pray that you have had a blessed time in the Lord. The Lord has kept you as we continue to um, navigate our way through quarantine. I pray that the Lord is keeping you, that you're using this time to dive into the Word of God, dive into the heart of God as well. Now, we are at a kind of a crossroads here in our Psalms text today. And I know you've already probably taken note of the title, but we really want to get through this. And, you know, one of the challenging things while we're away from each other is to try not to address overly weighty issues um, on this platform since we can't be together right now. But even in that, we do seek to faithfully preach the text that is before us. And I think we all know that there are times where we deal with subjects and topics that the Word of God tells us that we are to expound upon. And it is with great joy, actually, and in great humility that we bring up this topic today. So you see that the title today is God's Justice is Greater Than Social Justice. And when we understand the nature of what social justice is, what God's justice is, I think that the understanding of what this sermon is for you will be quite clear. That's my prayer, at least. Now, let's be candid. The term social justice comes with its own implications, and I think that those are more than just justice. Now, when we hear that term, if it was just justice with no social in front of it, then it's left up to each individual, their personal interpretation of what justice is. But there is this little word in front of justice, and that is social. Now, this is not what we think of in terms of social media or even social distancing, but this word has some really, really strong roots when we hear that word social, when we say that word social. In the early 1900s, there was a movement that went about called the social gospel. And in that social gospel, they had been infusing social Darwinist thoughts and and philosophies about how the government should be run and how the economy should be run and how people should um, cohabitate and interact with one another. One of the major aspects to social Darwinism, though, is that it comes with the influence of anti-non-Christian minds. And so, you know, it's not my job to give you a history lesson here, though I do have a history degree, But I think knowing the context behind the words can help us understand why we should accept or reject the meaning altogether. Now, what they did when they were using the term social, social gospel, is that they were drawing conclusions about social relationships all based off the notion that even if there is a God, which they did not claim, that man is not born depraved. Man is not inherently evil. And so at the end of this sermon, I do want you to to 
have a stronger feeling about God's justice. I don't want you to just hate social justice or hate anybody who promotes it, but I want you to so desperately cling to the notion of God's justice that you see that everything else pales in comparison to the justice that God has. The reason many people are proponents, though, of social justice is because many of them feel like they don't have great trust and faith that there is true justice for all of us in God. But today we will see that having a full understanding of God's justice will cause us in our own lives to be patient, to be thankful, and even to be glad. So go with me, if you will, to Psalms chapter 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble in pairs before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. That, I, that in the gates of your daughter Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made in the net that they in the net that they hid. Their foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hagion Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Let's pray. Father God, this is indeed a heavy, weighty, sermon to be preached, it is carrying with it a lot of implications about what we know, what we perceive is truth in our own world, God. But we pray that through this sermon that you will give us clarity, that you will give us wisdom, that you will give us truth in how to pursue you, how to pursue your righteousness, and how to seek your justice and your justice alone. It is in your name that we do pray. Amen. 
Now, you may or may not notice that in this sermon, David opens up with four I will statements. He says, I will give thanks. I will recount. I will be glad and I will sing. David begins here by saying, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Now, the word heart, we always know, is extremely important when we see it appear in biblical texts. And David here is reiterating it. But he's more importantly saying, beyond just my physical limitation, God, I am giving praise and thanks to you with the entirety of who I am. He is giving full thanks to God. We are really, really accustomed to our thankfulness being some sort of physical response. But true thankfulness in God brings about a thankfulness and a praise that exudes out of our hearts. Rather than say it with the entirety of our bodies, we must fill it with the entirety of our being. I love the word that he used here, too, though. The word forgive thanks means to acknowledge all that is praiseworthy of God and give thanks to him. Next, David here says that he will recount all of God's wonderful deeds. David here is not just recounting the personal deeds, the personal good things that God has done individually, personally in his own life. But he's looking back at his own people, the Israelites, and looking at the track record that God has with them as well. And he knew that the goodness of God stretched further than even his own existence. And he knows he's connected to it. Look at the coupling of the first verse. I will give thanks and I will remember. There is something that happens that is miraculous in the life of the believer. Even in the most traumatic circumstances, we can look back at the thankfulness, the faithfulness of God and we are thankful. But he says, I will give thanks and I will remember. There is something that we cannot divorce in the life of the believer that when we give thanks to God, it also makes us remember the goodness of God as well. I like how William Cowper said it. He said, as the scent reveals what liquid is in the bottle, our mouths should smell continually of the mercy that has refreshed our hearts. We are called bottles of mercy. Amen. Amen. When we see what great mercy has been delivered up to us, we should spring up of wells of gratitude before our most holy God, knowing that it should naturally produce in us an unprecedented gladness. David says, I will be glad and I will exalt you. Doesn't that seem like the natural response to the goodness and greatness of God? I give thanks. I remember your works, therefore I am glad. Joy and gladness are seemingly forgotten traits in the life of believers. Far too often we encounter, I know I do, many believers who are sour, who are barely tolerable, but to be glad and to have joy should be the main thing that we display as Christians. We should be fully displaying the wonderful works of God in our dispositions. 
Why would anyone believe in the goodness of God if they can't see the goodness in God, of God on us? If we are not radiating with and in his goodness, then how can anybody believe anything we say about him? Finally, at the end of the I will statements, David says that I will praise your name in the totality of the goodness and gratefulness that he has towards God. It is great joy that we should feel in our hearts. They should be fit to burst unless we exclaim, let out our song of praise that we have for God. That is why Paul says that we greet one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And even while he was in prison, into the wee hours of the night, he exclaimed and he sung the praises of God. Because there was deep joy that was in his heart. Yes, that is what a Christian should feel. And then things take a turn. He says, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Well, wait a minute, all right? How do we go from bright, exuberant David who is exclaiming all of the praises of God to talking about his enemies? There seems to be this inextricable bond between our peace and our understanding of what the justice of God truly is. In fact, you can almost read this psalm either way, front to back or back to front, but you're going to get the same conclusion. God's justice is our peace. Look at verses three and four. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish for you have maintained my just cause, giving righteous judgment. What holds David's peace in the midst of real enemies are two things. One, he knows his cause. And two, he knows his God. David says, you have maintained my just cause because this is exactly what God has always done. Jump with me to Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. I'm, I, I love this part. And I love this scripture because we're really getting into the thick of it here. You see here that the scripture says exactly that God, not man, God, not man, executes his justice for the fatherless, for the widow, for the foreigner, for the sojourner, and even gives them food. Now I know what you're thinking. Yes, that's exactly what social justice is. We take care of everybody else, all of the marginalized people in society. Now... You're probably wondering, well, if that is social justice, how could you bring such a strong condemnation of it? Well, here's the thing. That's not social justice. It's not social justice at all. Social justice is built on man executing justice according to man's own righteousness. Now, you're probably wondering then, okay, well, 
If you say that, if God is the executor of justice, how is God going to execute his justice apart from the work of man? And I'll give you a clear answer. He wasn't. God is not, never intended to execute his justice apart from man. The justice that God was executing was through the society that God himself set up, not man. What am I saying? God had a system. He had a society that he had set up with people that he had appointed that were intended to execute his justice which means there did not have to be a reliance on anybody to have to execute justice apart from him. They did not rely on the government to be the executor of their justice. They did not rely on the authorities to execute justice. They relied on God-appointed men to execute justice. You don't believe me? Let's go to the text. Deuteronomy 16 and 18. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the system that God set up. Notice that they were to appoint judges and these judges judged righteously, which means that they cannot be judging according to their own arbitrary standards of what right is or what wrong is. But they judge according to God's way, God's law and God's justice. Therefore, it is not a cause here for social justice, but it is, in fact, a condemnation of it. They were not to judge according to their own righteousness, which means that they were merely the mouthpieces, judges of God by proxy. Make no mistake, however, the judgment was God's and God's alone. Now, the functionality here was corrupted. By Israel, it was corrupted by Israel's own desire to be independent of God. See, if you know what the Bible says, you remember that in the book of Samuel, they came and they appealed saying that we no longer want judges, but we want a king to rule over us, a king who will rule apart from the judges and apart from God. Now, in that moment that they did this, their system of justice was broken and they no longer relied on God's system of justice. But the hands of man now held the weight of justice, which, by the way, we have proven all throughout the annals of time. We are incapable of properly handling the cause of justice in the first place. Now, in the moment that Samuel appointed, allowed Saul to be appointed the king, he warned Israel that all of Saul's righteousness was infused with their own justice system. It was infused with their own righteousness. In his farewell address, he warned that their morality could not be divorced from the king that they appointed over themselves. See, Every other major kingdom had a king. 
Now, Israel had a king. They didn't know they had a king. The king that they had been appointed was God the whole time. But they didn't see it that way. And so when they did this, they no longer relied on the judges that God had given them to execute justice on earth. And ever since then, man has sought to corrupt God's justice system. We have been desperately trying to execute our own justice apart from him. And the more we do this, the more we have dug ourselves into a deeper philosophical hole because the more man tries to execute justice, this, the more people will get off scot-free. We, like Israel, often seek to be independent of the righteous justice of God. So what do we do? We decide what is right. We decide what is wrong. And more than that, we often lose sight of what true justice and righteousness is. And the moral lines only get more blurred. Listen, most of the time we think of the term social justice or the social justice movement, we think of one thing being definably good and one thing being definably evil. But let's face the reality. Most of the things that we see on the news or on social media when it comes to social justice is usually unrighteousness versus unrighteousness. It is usually evil versus evil. And then we lift one up as if it is good when oftentimes... Neither are good. Let me tell you this. Your righteousness cannot be defined by a tragic end to your life, but it must be defined by God's righteousness, which means it doesn't matter how you left out of here. Your death in no way justifies you before the eyes of God. So even if a tragic circumstance occurred to you, you will not be put in heaven according to God's justice system. Now, we may put you in heaven according to our own, but not God. Let's look at what it says here. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness and he judges the peoples with uprightness. God alone singularly is the righteous judge. When we come to the aid of unrighteousness, it only blurs the lines of any righteousness we have at all. Justice in the hands of man will always utterly fail. And I got a great example for you. So there's this movie. It's actually one of my favorite movies. It's called Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. And I know you've probably never heard of it, but it's an excellent movie. Let me tell you why. It's not good for the reasons that they made it good. It's good for my own personal reasons. So at the beginning of the movie, we are introduced to, the, to this woman whose daughter had been raped some years prior and murdered. When, when this happened, furious, wanting justice to be served, but never seeing it, after years had passed, she had actually put up three billboards at the entry of the city condemning the police chief because he had not brought his, his, her daughter's killer, murderer, and rapist to justice. So she is condemning him. He comes to her one-on-one. He says, Mildred, you know, I have cancer and I'm dying. 
And she says, I know that. The whole town knows that. She said, that's why I want to get these billboards up before you die so that they would actually have an effect. Now, when this happens, he ends up forming a, a pretty decent bond with her. But fearing the looming tragedy of having to suffer through cancer, he decides to kill himself. Now, it had nothing to do with her or those billboards, but that's what the entire town thought. And so they were all furious with her because they thought that she had caused him to kill himself. In her desperate attempt to get justice, they thought that she had led to a man's suicide. Frustrated, one of his most loyal police officers walks right across the street to the guy who put the billboards up and beat him within an inch of his life because he was so angry at what had happened. He put that boy in the hospital. Now, as that happens, the new police chief sees this and immediately fires this guy. Now, some time passed and somebody actually lit all three of her billboards on fire. Furious, thinking that it was the police department, she goes with the intent to burn the police department down. What she doesn't know, however, is that the man who had just beaten up this other guy, gets a letter from the dead police chief telling him to solve this case, to do it out of love, to seek and pursue justice. And so as she sits ready to throw a firebomb into the police department, she doesn't know this man is actually retrieving her daughter's file so they can save the, save, solve the case. And so when all of this happens, he ends up getting burned. Now, he doesn't die but he is severely burned all over his body and he ends up in the hospital. Some more time passes and, and he realizes, you know what, I have been a really bad person in my own life and solving this crime, bringing justice, is going to give my life some semblance of meaning. And so that's what he attempts to do. And so he's sitting at the bar one day and he hears a guy seemingly bragging about raping this girl and murdering this girl and so he thinks that he's solved the case. So he gets in a fight with this guy and he scratches him, gets some of his DNA in his skin. He then takes it to the police chief, believing that this is the guy. He even calls the mother and says, I think we got him. But unfortunately, once he got the call back, he realized that this wasn't the guy at all. Desperate and downtrodden, thinking that he had, he had wasted his life, he called the mother back with the barrel of a shotgun to his chin knowing that he could not bring justice to this man, he gets ready to commit suicide. But then he calls her, and he tells her, he says, listen, he didn't rape your daughter, he didn't kill your daughter, but he did kill somebody. You want to pay him a visit? And they decide to pay the guy a visit the next morning. When they pay him a visit, they're deciding whether or not, on the way there, if they're really going to kill him or not. And they both look at each other and say, I guess we'll just figure out when we get there. And that's how the movie ends. Now, what does that have to do with justice, social justice or justice or God's justice? Well, let me explain. The entirety of that movie, that lady was devoting her life to bringing justice for the death and rape of her daughter. She devoted her whole life to that, so much so that everybody in that town fell under her unrighteous wrath. She poured her wrath out on everybody. But let's reconcile this, and I want us all to reconcile this together. What would have happened if she had gotten that man arrested? 
would that have been justice? What if she had killed him? Would that have been justice? Let me tell you why it wouldn't have been. Because neither one of those acts would have brought her daughter back to life. Now, this should bring the gospel in a perfect picture and for us to perfectly understand the justice of God. Because though the death of that man would not have brought her daughter back to life, the death of one man brought all of us who were dead into life. That is true justice. The injustice of many that was poured out on Jesus Christ allowed the just wrath of God to be poured on him and not us. That is the true definition of justice. That we all should have been hanging up on that cross, but God decided to pour that wrath out on his son. And by him dying, we were made alive. That is what true justice does. So, I know you're probably wondering, what do we do? Where is justice? Do we riot? Do we do nothing? What do we do if we look at the world and see all of the evil that is in the world? What do we do? Let's look at what the scripture says. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he avenges. Listen to this. For he who avenges blood. God is the avenger. He is mindful of them. Listen to this last verse. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. God hears those of us who are oppressed and who are downtrodden and he has not forgotten us at all. And remember, I know it feels that way. Even Jesus, while on the cross, looks up to God and asks him, why have you forsaken me? But this scripture is a reminder that we are not forgotten. We are not forsaken. We must trust him as that he is the faithful and righteous judge of all of our lives. If we believe in God, if we trust in God, then we must believe in God and trust in God. Now, what happens to those who are oppressed if justice is not the goal? What do we what happens with those people? Because we see oppression everywhere. What happens to them? And I can tell you. In the Bible, like we saw, God gave Israel the judges to not just judge over righteousness and unrighteousness, but he gave them, you remember, to care for groups of people. Who were those people? Those people were the oppressed. They would all share their resources together and they would pull them and help the orphans. They would help the sick. They would help the widows. They would help the elderly. They would do everything as a body of people for one another. 
That is how you took justice out of the hands of the government. And it's the same way today. We as believers should not be relying on our government to be God. We take the hands of justice out of the hands of the government. We take that out of their hands. The church should lead the charge in adoption so that more young children are not exposed to racism, not exposed to sex trafficking, not exposed to abortion. If the church would support those who are struggling in the congregation as we are called to, then we don't have to put all of our eggs in one political basket expecting them to be God. Listen, it was my great joy when I saw the church rally behind people in our own congregation who needed help. That is what the church does. If the church would be the church, then the government won't have to be God. That is what we do as the church, and that should not be outside of the norm. That should be the norm because we are called to lift and uphold and bear one another's burdens. That is the job of the church, which means we wouldn't have so much disparity if we would take hold of the people in our congregation and take care of them like we have been called to. That is the system that God has set up. I have one more text that I want to go through. And we're going to close with this. Luke 16 and 19. It's a familiar text, but I want you to look at it with a different eye today. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime receive your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us. And you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither would they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, do you know why we read this? When Jesus came, yes, he cared for the weak and he cared for the marginalized and he cared for the broken and he cared for the abused. But they all had the same sickness that he came to heal. And that sickness was sin. 
If Jesus' main goal was to execute judgment on the earth, then he would have established his kingdom then and destroyed all the enemies of God, but he didn't. He didn't champion trying to even the scales of justice because he knew that on the cross, the scales would be perfectly balanced and he would take our sins. But I want you to notice something about Lazarus and the rich man here. The whole of Lazarus' life, he received bad things. He was probably mocked. We know he was sick, starving, even to the point that he died. The rich man, however, received nothing but good things. Now, at the end of both of their lives, the scales were balanced. The rich man who received nothing but luxury and privilege in his own life was in eternal torment. And Lazarus, who received nothing but bad things, was in eternal grace and bliss and joy with God. Now, when Jesus came, he could have said, oh, let's riot, let's petition for Lazarus because we need to feed Lazarus, we need to take care of Lazarus. But no, he didn't do that. He knew that there was an eternal day that the scales would be balanced. And in that day, in that very first moment, which, by the way, the first moment of heaven never ends. There was immediately no remembrance of the suffering that Lazarus had been through before. He was in paradise. Now, he wasn't in paradise because he was poor, just like the rich man wasn't in hell because he was rich. Lazarus was in paradise because he was poor in spirit. Because he had faith in God and he had humbled himself to serve God. The rich man, however, had devoted his own life to himself and had rejected any relationship with God. And he lacked saving faith. Listen, the fact of the matter is this. We have no need down here on this earth to try to balance the scales of justice. Why do you think if you ever look at the symbol of justice that that lady that's holding the scales, she's blind? Because we would never be perfect, perfect executors of justice. Even if you find yourself broken, distressed, hated, beaten, mocked, or oppressed, if you are a true believer, there is an eternal weight of glory that is no comparison. It's not even close. Like we think this is bad, but that first moment of heaven, it is incomparable. To anything we go through down here, there will be no remembrance of the pain and torment you went through. Since we know that one day the scales will be perfectly balanced for all of us, let us not waste time in our own lives chasing issues, trying to get resolutions to issues that we have seen will never be resolved. But let us seek after the justice of God let us move and let us go 
and let us share the true saving gospel with everyone we know. That is what the true justice of God looks like. That we all deserve to be on a cross, to be in hell for all of eternity, to suffer the penalty for our own sins. But Jesus didn't allow it. He took that penalty for us so that we wouldn't have to. Now, the Bible warns us that this is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. But the wisdom, the foolishness of God, the Bible says, is better than the wisdom of man. In our eyes, in our limited view of justice, to let somebody else Take the penalty for us doesn't make any sense. But remember this, God alone is the perfect executor of justice. And what is foolish to us is the very wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that you have allowed us to share. God, we are often overwhelmed by the many growing issues that we face in our country and in our world. Whether it's racism, whether it's abuse of the poor, whether it's unborn children, whether it is sex trafficking, God, whatever the issue is, we know that you have taken your stance on the side of the oppressed that you are the one who alone judges and judges righteously with uprightness and you execute perfect justice. God, yes, we are frustrated at times that we don't feel like justice is coming the way that we expect, but we do know, God, that one day for every single one of us, The scales will be balanced. And all we want to do while we sit here on this earth is not be driven into anger, not be driven into hate. But knowing that there's one thing that can solve every issue, every sin, and that is the gospel. God, let us be heralds of that gospel, the true gospel, knowing that you alone will execute your justice for every one of us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.